John, man, thank you for being here, bro. Uh, we're looking forward to it. What's up, Exchange Church? How are we doing this morning? Okay, all right, all right, all right. Had to think about that for a second, man. Just You're like, I don't know, how are we doing this morning? Um, so thrilled to be here with you guys. Um, I had the privilege of talking to Josiah before he planted Exchange. And I remember when I first met Josiah, um, and you know, I've, I meet a lot of church planters. We planted about 11 years ago. And so you talk to guys, and they're like, I want to plant a church. And we we're like, are you sure? You know. Um, but one of the things that I, I remembered then and is still true today, first time I met Josiah, I just recognized how much he's the real deal, right? You know, like a, because sometimes pastors can put on a front, <laughs> but not be the real deal behind the scenes. And I just have so much respect for him. And Melissa and I have so much respect for him and Kimber. So you guys have a great team here. Can we just give it up for them and leadership? We love you guys. And we are cheering on uh, what God is going to do here, is continuing to do here at Exchange Church. Here's how I'd like to start. Um, I'd love to start with a word of prayer. And specifically, at Crossway, before we get into our time of teaching, we do what's called a palms-up prayer. We literally place our palms up like this. It's this sort of physical uh, reminder to ourselves that we are in need of his filling and his strength and his presence, and we want to receive whatever he has for us. So if you feel comfortable, just across the room, would you place your palms up like this? And let's just invite the Holy Spirit to come and to speak to us here today for those of us who are in person and for those who are watching online. So Father, right now, I just thank you that you're with us. Like you are here with us in this space. And our hands are up and our palms are up because we're simply saying to you, God, whatever you have for us individually, we want to receive it. So come Holy Spirit and pour out on us a fresh love for you, a fresh passion for the lost, and God, a fresh anointing to make a difference in this region for the fame of Jesus Christ. Lord, we love you, and we commit this time to you. It is about you. We ask all of this in the beautiful name of Jesus, and everyone together said, amen. So about 21 years ago, I went on my very first date with my now wife. Her name is Melissa. And because I'm a hopeless romantic, I took her to somewhere really special. I took her to a church service. <laughs> I'm not lying. Uh, it was... Saturday night church service at Calvary, Fort Lauderdale. I was on staff at another church. And I think back on that moment, I thought to, my, I think to myself, like, what must that conversation have been like? Hey, baby, you want to go to church with me? You know, for some reason, she said yes. We went to service on a Saturday night service. And there used to be an old Bennigan's near Calvary that's now closed down. We went to eat at Bennigan's. And, and, and it went well from the beginning. We had already kind of known each other a little bit. We were growing as friends. And now we were kind of taken into the next level of chemistry. And I remember we got in the car and I was driving. And I go over to 95 to take her home, and I turn northbound on 95, uh, which doesn't you know, seem like a big deal, except for the fact that she actually lived south on 95, not north on 95. And I didn't realize it because I was too distracted. I was distracted by her beauty. I was distracted by our conversation. I was distracted trying to look smart and look like I had things together. And about 20 minutes into driving the wrong direction, she looks up and says, Linton Boulevard, I think you're going the wrong way way, right? And I had to get off of the exit, turn around, and head back south. Now, what my wife was doing, my now wife, and then uh, the, the person I was dating, the, what my wife was doing was she was reminding me of our purpose, 
Uh, the purpose for which we were in the car, like we weren't just in the car to, to talk, we weren't just in the car to share our stories, we were in the car for a particular purpose, and the purpose was to take her home. And so she was reminding me of the purpose, and when I was reminded of that purpose, I had to reorient my direction to go back to where we originally were supposed to head. What I want to do this morning as we continue the teaching series called The Jesus Church, which I love that series title, I'll probably steal it from you, Josiah, don't uh, mind there, um, and what we're going to do today is I want to talk about our purpose. And I say our purpose because I mean the purpose of Jesus' church. So that includes you, that includes exchange, that includes me, that includes Crossway, which is the church I pastor. I want to talk about our purpose. I want to talk about our mission. And I want to remind us again of the fundamental reality that Jesus has called us to. And I think this is important for a lot of reasons. But one thing that I'll say to you as a church that's three and a half years old is that it's significant and important to always go back to the mission because the longer a church is in existence, the easier it is for mission drift and mission creep to enter in and for us to start focusing on other things that aren't the mission of Jesus. And so what we want to do today is focus, laser in, on the mission that Jesus has called us to. So we'll start in the book of Matthew, as he mentioned, uh, chapter 28. And uh, verse 16, it starts by saying this. Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. And when they saw him, they worshipped, but some doubted. Now, a little context here. This is post the resurrection of Jesus. So God, the Son, takes on flesh, dwells among us in the form of a baby. He lives for 30 years in relative obscurity. And then the last three years of his life is when he enters into his public ministry. At the end of his public ministry, you guys know what happens. Many of you, Judas betrays him. He's handed over to the Roman soldiers and the Roman authorities, and they put him to death. So you'll be celebrating in a couple weeks on Good Friday, remembering. After his death, he's buried, and on that Sunday, he raises to newness of life. And from the point of resurrection to the ascension, when he heads back into heaven, is about 40 days. And in that 40-day span of time, he was talking to people, he was teaching people, he was engaging with people. And this moment that we're picking up on is one of the last things that Jesus says to the disciples before he ascends into heaven. It's what we call the Great Commission. And so this is Jesus sort of orienting the hearts and the minds of his disciples towards their purpose. This is him telling them what direction they're supposed to be driving on I-95, right? This is the mission. Now, before he gets into the mission, he says something that's significant. And it says this in verse 18. Then Jesus came to them and said, all, now what's that next word out there? I want you to read it out loud with me. All what? All authority, all right? All authority in heaven and on earth, has been given to me. Now, I find this to be interesting, that before Jesus commissions the disciples, he establishes his authority. Now, why does he do that? And the reason why I believe he does that is because authority determines activity. As a matter of fact, can we all say that out loud together? Authority determines activity. What I mean by that is when someone is in authority over your life, in a particular sphere of life, they have the ability to determine your activity in that sphere of life. So how many of you have a boss? Anybody here have a boss? Do we have any boss people? Okay, a bunch of us. Uh, if you have a boss and you're planning on going to work tomorrow, you recognize that your boss has authority and that because he or she has authority, they can determine your activity at work. 
Which means that tomorrow morning you can't walk in and say, you know, I know I was supposed to work all week and get paid for that work, but I'd rather go home and watch Netflix for the week. Is that cool with you, right? The boss is going to say, no, if you do that, you will be what? Fired. (laughs) Why? Because the boss is an authority in that sphere, and because they have authority, they determine activity. Uh, Some of you are in college, or you remember being in college, and when you step into a classroom, you have a professor, and that professor has what? They have authority, and they get to determine activity. So your professor can say to you, okay, by next Friday, 50-page paper done on this topic, formatted in APA style. Now, it doesn't matter if you hate writing papers. (laughs) It doesn't matter if you hate APA and you'd rather write into Arabian style. Here's the deal. Because your, uh, your professor has authority, they have the authority to determine activity. So here's what Jesus is doing before he gives the Great Commission. He is establishing to his disciples. He's establishing to us. He's establishing to all of us who are following his his authority. Now, what does he say about his authority? He says this. He doesn't say, all authority has been given to me over my disciples, although that's true. He doesn't say, all authority has been given to me over the church, although that's true. What does he say? He says, all authority where in heaven and on earth has been given to me. The resurrected Lord Jesus wants to establish the reality that he has authority over all things. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. And the Father has placed in the hands of Jesus all authority. And it is from this place of supreme ultimate authority that Jesus then commissions the activity of the disciples. Now, I want you to notice what he says next. Some of you who've grown up around church will know this to be familiar. He says this, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Now, when Jesus says this to the disciples, we have to remember that Jesus is not just talking to those 11 disciples that were there, right? We have to be careful when sometimes we read texts like this of Jesus speaking that we don't place ourselves on the outside as someone watching Jesus talking to somebody else. Like as if you turned on BBC and you've got the prime minister giving a speech to the people of England and you go, isn't that sweet? And I love their accents, but he's not talking to me, right? That's not what's going on here. When Jesus talks to the 11 disciples and says, go and make disciples, he is by extension through the Holy Spirit, speaking also to you if you are one of his disciples. As a matter of fact, just to drive that point home, I want to do this. Would you put up the the next slide for me, if you would? And it says this. We're going to read this out loud together. It says, therefore, and then it says, insert name here. You're not going to read the words insert name here. Uh, You're going to say your name out loud, okay? Uh, Therefore, you're going to say your name, and we'll read the rest. And as you say your name, I want you to envision Jesus speaking to you, giving this commission from his place of authority to you. So can we read this out loud together? Put your name in the middle. Let's read. Therefore, John, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. This isn't for somebody else. This is for me. This is for you. This is for you individually. Oh, and by the way, this is for you as a community of faith, as the Exchange Church. And so I'll read this next one for you. But this is the Lord speaking to this church. Therefore, Exchange Church, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. What is the mission? The mission is go and make disciples. Now, as we say that, 
If we're going to accomplish the mission, we have to be reminded for a moment of what a disciple is. Because if you're not clear what a disciple is, it'll be very difficult to make a disciple, right? Sort of like you take a job as a line cook in a nice restaurant, and your first day on the job, the head chef says to you, go and make some beef tartare. If you have no idea what beef tartare is, it will be difficult to make it, right? So what is a disciple? Go back with me to first century Jerusalem. And Jesus, in his earthly ministry, his vocation was he was a rabbi. Of course, he's more than a rabbi. He's God in the flesh. But this was his vocation. This is how he operated in that cultural context as a rabbi. And there were many rabbis in Jerusalem during the time. A rabbi was essentially, essentially a religious teacher. And rabbis had disciples. And disciples followed the rabbis. And so Jesus' disciples, he had many, but he had 12 that were like the closest core, right, as the apostles and and, and he took those, those 12, and for three years, those 12 followed him wherever he went. Wherever Jesus led, they followed. Whatever Jesus did, they watched. Every time Jesus taught, they were taking notes, right? Everything that Jesus did, they tried to emulate. Every time he commanded them to do something, they followed through. And the goal of the disciple was to become more like the rabbi. A disciple of Jesus, fast forwarding to 2021, is essentially somebody who's growing to be more like Jesus, seeking to follow Jesus, seeking to learn from Jesus in the way of Jesus right here in South Florida. And, and as Jesus calls us to that, right, to go and make disciples, go bring people to, to come and follow me in my way, he gives us two important dimensions of what discipleship looks like. And these are significant. And I want you to pay attention to what he says here in verse 13. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Here's the first dimension. I want you to read those next two words, the bolded words out loud with me. Go and make disciples of all nations. He says, what's next? Baptizing them. Okay, first thing, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And what are those next two words that say them? Teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Here's what Jesus is doing. He's giving us, he says, go and make disciples. And he says, okay, in that pursuit, as you engage in that activity of disciple making, here are the two dimensions of disciple making. The first one is baptizing, and the second one is teaching. So we've got baptizing and teaching. Now, let me say this before I get into both of them. I want to remind us that when we seek to make disciples of Jesus, we've got to remember that both baptizing and teaching uh, go together. They're, they're not independent of one another. It's sort of like, has, has anyone ever ridden on one of those, one of those hoverboards? Does anyone have a hoverboard? Have you ridden on a hoverboard? Anybody? We've got nobody in the entire room. Okay, we've got a couple in the back. There we go. Thank you. Thank you. We've got four or five now. A friend of mine had a hoverboard. I was there. I stood on it. And I, I wrote it for like 15 seconds because I didn't want to be that guy that gets videotaped falling on it, you know what I mean? And goes viral on YouTube, so I was just there. But Hoverboard has two wheels, okay, if you've not seen one. Apparently nobody, most of you, <laughs> it's got two wheels. And you stand on it, you lean forward, you go forward, you lean back, you go backwards, lean to the side, and you go sideways. A hoverboard works when there are two wheels, right? It has forward momentum when there are two wheels. Two wheels. What happens if you take one of the wheels off, right? You're not going to have any forward mo motion, are you? As a matter of fact, you might just end up going in circles. When it comes to the mission of Jesus, 
both baptizing them and teaching them are like the two wheels of a hoverboard that move us forward to accomplish his mission. So I want us to talk through both of these realities. We'll start with baptizing, then we'll talk about teaching and seeing how they're interlocked together that help us move the mission forward. Let's start with baptizing. What is Jesus talking about? What is the idea of baptizing them? Uh, what happens in baptism? Here's what happens. Is you, you place your trust in Jesus, and then you, are, you go under the water, right? When you go under the water, it is like you're dying to your old way of life. And then you come out of the water, and it's like you're rising again to your new way of life as a follower of Jesus Christ. Baptizing them, when he tells us to do that, represents evangelism. It represents bringing people to the faith. It represents inviting people who don't know Jesus to come into a relationship with Jesus so that they can get baptized, right? So, so the first dimension of disciple-making is all about evangelism and reaching those who do not yet know Jesus. It's about you living in this world where you go to work and where you live and where, where, where you have recreation, all that kind of stuff, as somebody who acknowledges the fact that God has placed you there to reach your one. And when I say one, here's what I mean. Uh, you might be familiar with the parable that Jesus tells about the shepherd. And he's like, man, if you got the shepherd, he's got 100 sheep and 99 are safe and sound. And one of them runs away. He says, won't that shepherd do what? Go after who? The one. Right? So the one represents the one who's lost, the one who doesn't yet know Jesus. Now, I want you to think with me for a minute, and I want to ask you this question, and it's this. Who is your one? Now, what I mean by that, it could be one person. It could be many people. We're going to use that picture. Who is your one? Who are the people in your life who God has placed you strategically in their life uh, who don't yet know Jesus. And he's placed you there to invite them into a relationship with him. Now, here's what I want to do, a little exercise, so you can process this with me. Could you just, for a minute, close your eyes? Don't fall asleep on me, but close your eyes, all right? And as you do, I, I want to just talk about three spheres of your life. And I want you to envision the faces and think about the names of the people in those three spheres of your life who don't yet know Jesus, but you're in relationship with them, but they don't yet know Jesus. Let's start in the first one. Uh, let's start with work. Maybe for you, if, you don't, uh, if you're not working, but you're in school, think about school, okay? I want you to take a minute, and I want you to envision the faces of some people at your work or at your school and their names who don't yet know Jesus. All right, here's the second one. I want you to think with me about your extended family your uncles, your aunts, your tias, your tios, your grandparents, your cousins, right? your extended family. Okay, I want you to envision, if you have some who don't yet know him, I want you to think about the faces and the names of some people in your extended family who do not yet know Jesus. Okay, last one. I want you to think about your neighborhood or your apartment complex or your dorm. And I want you to envision the faces and the names of people who live around you who you know don't yet know Jesus. Okay, you can open your eyes. Now what I want you to do is I want you to just take one name, one first name of those people that you envision. And on the count of three, I just want you to say one of those first names, okay? Let's just make it like settle in our heart. Ready? One, two, three. Okay. Now that person, okay, that person that you said their name along with the others you envisioned, I want you to hear something and it's this, is that God deeply loves them. Like God deeply loves them. 
That person that you said their name and, and the people that you saw and the, pe- the names that you were thinking, I mean, Jesus has strategically placed you in that sphere at your neighborhood, in your workplace, and your extended family to be light in the darkness for them and to invite them into a relationship with him. That one that we use, that big category, if it's one person or it's many, those people in your life, God has placed you there for a purpose and for a reason. Now, here's one of the things, though, that I've noticed about Christians, and when I say Christians, I mean myself as well, and uh, and it's this. Although we understand that Jesus has called us to reach the one, and that's part of the mission, right, of making disciples, here's what I've seen. Christians love hanging out with the 99. We love spending time with the 99 because we are the 99, right? The 99 gets you the 99 think like you. The 99's kids are behaved, most of them, right? Like the 99, right? So we love hanging out with the 99. We love being with the 99. And sometimes as Christians, even though we've got this mission, go baptizing them, right? Evangelism, conversion. Here's what happens. We get comfortable just hanging out with the 99 rather than running after the one. My brother is a, uh, a missionary in Panama. He actually got his degree in accounting, and then for whatever reason, God called him from accounting to missionary. It's a little bit of a different thing, uh, but that's his journey. He lived in central Florida. He's got four daughters, two cars, single-family house, sold it all, and first moved to Nicaragua where he studied, and, and he worked there for three and a half years. Then because of civil unrest, they moved to Panama. And one of the things, of course, that a missionary does is a missionary goes into places where they don't yet know Jesus and invites them to a relationship with Jesus. One of the places my brother's working is with a tribe in the Darien jungle. And he just had his first baptism there with his tribe in the Darien jungle. Really cool, beautiful stuff. But one of the things that missionaries have to do, and some of you may or may not know this, is that they have to raise financial support to go out on, on the field. Because oftentimes the people that they're reaching don't have the financial resources to support them. And so before my brother went down to the field, he raised all this financial support so he could do it. And because they have raised financial support, missionaries send these monthly or regular sort of support letters, uh, emails to their supporters, basically saying, I'm doing what you have sent me here to do. I'm doing the mission that I'm supposed to be here. Now, I want you to imagine something. My brother's down in Panama. You're one of his supporters, okay? And, um, and if you want to be one of his supporters, talk to me later. But uh, you're one of his supporters. <laughs> Tony will give me a commission. I'm just kidding. Uh, so you're one of his supporters. You get the first month's email, first month down in Panama, and the email goes like this. I just want to thank you for supporting me and my mission down here in Panama. I got to tell you, I met a bunch of amazing American missionaries, and we have spent the first month hanging out with each other and getting to know each other. Great. Second month. Now, this next month, all of us super close American missionaries that hang out all the time together decided that we would go on vacation in all of the best places in Panama. We stopped by the Panama Canal. We went to some of the beaches. It's been amazing. Thank you for your support. Next month, all of our incredibly close relationships with all of my American missionary friends, now we have done a culinary tour of Panama. We've gone to all of the best restaurants. We've gone to the nice places and the little holes in the wall, and boy, we are close closer than ever, and we've gained a few pounds. Thank you for your support. Now, imagine that 12 months go by, and all he ever says is, I'm hanging with my missionary friends. We're enjoying our time in Panama. If you're one of his supporters, let me ask you a question. Are you going to start thinking about whether you want to keep supporting him? 
The answer is yes, right? Why? Because if you have a missionary who's only spending time with other missionaries, here's what you have. You have a missionary who's forgotten their mission. Can I just say something? There are a lot of American Christians who are missionaries who've forgotten their mission. There are a lot of us who love hanging out at dinner with our 99. And we love inviting the 99 over to our house. And we love taking us and our kids 99 to the, to the ball field to play games together. And we love the 99. And we're doing all this 99 stuff. And it could very well be that sometimes we function as missionaries in South Florida who've forgotten our mission. Exchange Church, let that not be your story and let it not be my story. Right, let us remember that one of the most uh, important and significant facets of making disciples is inviting people who don't yet know Jesus into a relationship with him. And can I just say this? If you happen to feel a little convicted by that, uh, you have some great opportunities to step into this mission kind of mindset. As a matter of fact, this Saturday, it was mentioned earlier, you have your big ex extravag extravaganza. I love it. Extravaganza. Outreach. I'll be like, extravaganza. Anyway, so outreach. This is a really cool opportunity. Now, I want to say two things. First, here's my challenge. I challenge first service in this, and I want to challenge you in this too, okay? My challenge is this. I want to challenge you, okay? I know I'm an outsider looking in, but here's the deal. I want to challenge you to pick a day this week and to pray and, yes, fast for the extravaganza outreach this Saturday. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. Isn't that what Pastor Josiah is supposed to do? Like, he's the fasting guy. No, okay? I mean, yes and no, okay? Here's the deal. It is not just... Pastor Josiah's job to be praying and fasting for the church because he's not the church. Guess who's the church? You're the church. He's the leader here, right? But you're the church. And if we've only got one person and his wife praying and fasting, how many of you know we are missing the ball? But, but what would happen, guys? Listen, Exchange. What would happen if after this service you texted some of your friends from small group, you texted some of your friends from your serving team and said, all right, Wednesday, that's when we're going to pray and fast together. Are you in with me? What would happen if organically pockets of people within this church said, we're going to seek the face of God for this Saturday because we know that this Saturday could create some pivotal relationships that might move someone to Easter Sunday. Sunday and they could come to faith in Jesus Christ. Are you with me? Like, let, let's move in the direction of mission. We're not just 99 people. I mean, we're one focus. So maybe it's praying and fasting. Maybe it's your uh, responsibility or calling to serve this Saturday. Bring some candy. Okay, like all of that stuff. And, and then that's one. Here's the second one, which is so beautiful, which is Easter Sunday. Listen, Easter Sunday as a pastor, we love Easter Sunday. It's kind of like Super Bowl Sunday for us, you know. And one of the reasons why I love it is because I know that every Easter Sunday there's going to be people who don't come to church who show up. And that maybe for the first time in their life, for the first time in a long time, they get to hear the saving message of Jesus Christ. Here's my challenge for you as you head into Easter Sunday. Take those invite cards. Think about your one. Take a picture of it. Text someone after service. And like, let's move on inviting. Like, let the place be filled with people who don't yet know Jesus. This is our calling, right? This is our mission. This is what we're called to do. So Jesus says, here's the direction. Here's the purpose. Here's the mission first. Baptizing them, which is all about evangelism. But what was the second thing he said? So he says, first, go make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Does anyone remember what he says next? And what? And teaching them, all right? You get an A and a gold star on your test, okay? Teaching them 
to obey all that I have commanded. Now, this is really, really important because when we think about the mission of Jesus and when you think about what he's called us to, one component of disciple-making is evangelism. The second component of disciple-making is growing people into spiritual maturity. You could say it like this, and I think this is an important distinction for us to make. The mission of a Jesus church is not just making converts, it's making disciples. Fully devoted disciples of Jesus. What sometimes happens is that we mistake the idea of mission as only conversion. And, you, and someone comes to faith, and this person comes to faith, and this person comes to faith. But we don't grow them into maturity, and they become perpetual spiritual infants. Now listen, I love babies, okay? I really do. I have two children. One's 11, one's 7. Uh, eight, seven, he's turning eight. Okay, <laughs> don't tell him I forgot. He's turning eight in April. All right. And I love baby stage. My, my oldest is 11 now. I remember he was, uh, we adopted him when he was six months old. And I remember the baby stage, holding them is great, feeding them is great, they're learning everything. I didn't enjoy changing diapers, okay, but that was great. So I love the whole stage of baby, but now my son is 11 years old. And I got to tell you, I love this, this age as well, because he's growing to maturity. This past weekend, he was pressure washing the sidewalk in front of our house. And I just got to tell you, glory be to God for maturity. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> praise the Lord. I'm not changing his diaper. He's pressure washing the sidewalk. This is a good thing. And the heart of a father is not that their child would stay in perpetual infancy. The heart of a father is that their child would then grow to what? Maturity. So when Jesus calls us to mission, he's calling us, yes, to bring people to the saving knowledge of Jesus and then to grow them into spiritual maturity. Now, there's a couple ways you can think about this, and, and this is just a 5,000-foot view, but just to go real quickly on this, there's two facets of spiritual maturity that I think we need to consider. And as I share these with you, I want you to think in two ways. One, I want you to think about what it looks like for you to help other people grow in this. And then second, I want you to ask yourself this question if you're a Christian, am I growing in this? Am I, am I growing in this? Am, am I, because here's the deal. If you want to be a disciple-making disciple, you reproduce who you already are, right? So if you're not growing in spiritual maturity, it's very difficult to grow people in the spiritual maturity if that's not what you're doing. So the two things, right, under teaching them. The first one is love God, and the second one is love others. Can you say those two out loud with me? Love God and love others. Let's take real quickly from Matthew, the love God component. This is... Um, Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? In Matthew 22, verse 37, here's his reply. Jesus replied, right? So this is the summation of all of the teachings of the scripture. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all of your mind. I love that. What is he saying? A growing disciple of Jesus, if this is the greatest commandment, a growing disciple of Jesus, a maturing disciple of Jesus is someone who deeply loves God. So let me ask you this question. Do you love God? To which your answer is, if you've been around church any length of time, of course I love God, John. I mean, I sing all these songs, God, I love you. You know what I mean? Like, sure, I love you. Yes, I love God. Yeah, everybody loves God, right? And it almost seems like a given. Can I just challenge that? It's not a given. It's not a given. Just because you're sitting here doesn't mean it's a given. Just because you've been a Christian a long time doesn't mean it's a given. Just because you're part of the setup team doesn't mean it's a given. As a matter of fact, there are a lot of things 
that I've seen people replace love of God for. Here's one, cultural Christianity. That we mistake loving God for cultural Christianity. Cultural Christianity is this idea that the people around me are Christians. My wife's a Christian. Say, yeah, I'm a Christian. You know, I'm not something else. I'm a Christian. Or my parents are Christians. I remember them going to church. Or, boy, I kind of like the morality of Christianity. I think it'd be good to come to exchange because I want my kids to be around other nice kids. And maybe I'll find a nice Christian guy or a nice Christian girl. And this whole cultural Christian thing, boy, it's great. And I love it. Can I just tell you that that idea can absolutely get in the way of true love for God. That we can go through cultural Christian uh, actions and really have a heart that's far from God. That's one. Here's the second one. I see this a lot. And it's this. It's sort of ritualistic religious devotion. And this looks like this. You become a Christian. And you start learning what Christians are supposed to do. Supposed to show up on Sunday. Check. You know. Supposed to serve. Check. Supposed to tithe. Check. Supposed to be there at the extravaganza. Check. I'm going to be there. Right? Do all of the Christian things. And at some point what happens is that you begin to automate your religious activity. It's just automated. It's just what you do, right? It's like, oh, yeah, it's what I do, right? And, and it's possible that you can automate your religious activity and be doing these religious things and your heart growing farther and farther from God. I mean, this is what Jesus tells one of the churches in the book of Revelation when he's like, yo, listen, the only thing I have against you because you do all this great stuff is that you've forgotten your first what? Love. So return back again. Can I just say to you, do you, I mean, take honest stock in your heart. Do you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Because that is absolutely what God is inviting us into as we mature in our faith. And by the way, that is one of the very things that will fuel our, our heart for evangelism. And this is what God's after. I believe that what God, and I know this is already happening here, but more of this, I believe that God wants to, in more ways, in exchange church, raise up men who are so in love with God that it brings them to tears. I believe that God wants to raise up more and more women at Exchange Church who are so in love with God, they literally count down the hours before they can spend time in his word again. I believe that God wants to raise up college students and high schoolers who are so passionately in love with God that the temptations of the world and the visions of the world, they just push them aside and say, I don't care if everybody else is going this way. I'm going to pursue the one I love. This is what God wants to do. I believe that God wants to raise up more men and women who are so overflowing with love for God that they can't help it but to bring someone else along and say, boy, if this is what Jesus has done for me, then you've got to come and meet this Jesus. If this is how much he has changed my life, then you've got to come and meet the Jesus who's changed everything for me. That's what he wants to do in us, right? And it is from that place of overflowing love for God that mission is sustained. Because I'm going to tell you right now, when you're just going through religious, ritualistic stuff, there is no heart and burning heart for the lost And when you're rolling in cultural Christianity, there is no passion for the one who doesn't know him. But when you have been overcome by the love of the Father for you, and it fills you to the place of overflowing, then nobody can stop you from bringing people in. It is the fuel for mission that Jesus calls us to make disciples, baptizing them as evangelists, and then teaching them. One component is loving God. And here's the last thing I'll say. Love God. And the second part is what? Love others. Love others. This is so significant that Jesus says it 
They asked him what the greatest commandment was. He gives them the greatest commandment. Then he says, oh, but I'm not done. Here's the next thing. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as who? Yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commands. I'll just real quickly say, I love the fact that Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself. Because he knows how much you love you. (laughs) I mean, just think about how much you love you, right? When you're hungry, what do you do? You feed you. When you're thirsty, what do you do? You give yourself something to drink. When you're tired, what do you do? I'm going to take a nap, right? When, when injustice has happened to you, what do you do? You speak up for you. You love you. Like you are, you love you. And Jesus is like, great, glad you love yourself so much. Now, here's what I want you to do. Go and love your neighbor like that. Now, the interesting thing is that from the very beginning, the people that Jesus was teaching did not quite get it, and they kept pushing back. So he'd be like, love their neighbor, and they're like, but Jesus, like, who's my neighbor really? You know, like, really? And then Jesus tells them the Good Samaritan story, which is basically everybody's your neighbor. And then he's like, but in case you don't understand that, let me say this. Jesus goes, love your enemies, not just your neighbors, right? Pray for them, bless them. And then Jesus, to take it one notch further, not only does he say love your neighbor, love your enemy, what does he do? He's hanging on the cross. Get this. He's literally been pinned to the cross by the Roman soldiers. The guys who've brutalized him are standing in front of him. You know, Jesus prays for them. You know what he prays? Father, what, does anyone know? Forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Like, I'd be like, they know what they're doing, Jesus. He's like, no, 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 you don't understand how much I love them. I love them. I love that one, that one, that one, yeah, that one. Father, forgive them, but I know what they're doing. The the point is that there's no such thing as Christianity without self-giving love. Self-giving love is the essence, the basis of the message of Christianity. The hard part is that too often in the last year, I've seen a lot of people and even Christians who've kind of forgotten that part of the essence of spiritual maturity is absolutely and fundamentally radical love for our neighbors and even our enemies. I don't know if you've seen this, but the political divides. I don't know if you've seen this, but all of the things that have gotten in our way and the way we speak to each other and the way we often speak to the watching world, here we are trying to say, come and receive the love of God, and yet we're not loving others in a radical way. Guess what that is? That's called false advertising. A couple years ago, we were in Blairsville, Georgia, a small town in Georgia, and there is a place there that is considered the best barbecue restaurant in the entire area. Uh, entire North Georgia, they say. It's called Jim's Smoking Q, which is a great name for a barbecue restaurant in Georgia, right? And um, so we decided to go there because we were told it's amazing. Now, this is not your normal barbecue restaurant mission barbecue. This isn't Four Rivers, okay? This works like this. It's only open a handful of days a week. It starts around like 11 when you can start lining up, and then they are open until they're out of food. And if they run out of food, it's like, sorry. And so one day, it was a Wednesday, I think, we went there, and we're thinking we're going to eat dinner, and we get to the line, and they're like, you're obviously a tourist because we're out of food. You can come back tomorrow. Like, that's how it rolls. That's how good it is in the end of man. So the next morning, we get there early. Uh, like an hour before it was supposed to open, there are already people lined up at Jim's Smoking Q, and we're starting to get hungry because we're smelling like the smoke coming from the restaurant. And we're looking at the menu as we're waiting. Brisket, oh, I can't wait to try that. Ribs, oh, it smells so good. Some of you guys haven't eaten lunch. You're like, it's time, right? <laughs> Sausage, that looks so good. Mac and cheese, yes, sir, I would like some of that. We're just so ready, right? Waiting the entire hour. Now imagine this, imagine we get up to the window after coming the day before and being rejected, showing up for an hour, waiting, smelling the smoke. Imagine we get to the window and the lady at the window says, I'm sorry, sir, 
We don't have any meat today, but we do have broccoli and we have some tofu. How would you feel about that, right? Here's what you would feel. False advertising, right? Because I didn't come for broccoli. I came for brisket. And if you're promising brisket, don't offer me broccoli. Can I get an amen on that one? Okay, you got final, right? Some barbecue lovers in the place, right? That would be called false advertising. I'm expecting one thing, and I get something else. Too many unbelievers look at the church and look at Christians, and they're expecting, oh, we're talking about the love of God and love for others, and they see division, and they see anger, and they see lack of forgiveness, and guess what? that is false advertising and Jesus is like hey if you want to have the potency and power for mission and the attractiveness in your life to invite people into the love of God then you have to in your actions and on your social media and through your relationships represent love for others in a radical self-giving way because it is the kindness of God that leads to repentance And oftentimes it is the kindness of the people of God, not watering down the truth, but the beautiful kindness of love of the people of God towards even our enemies that opens up the hearts of people who don't yet know Jesus to be able to receive the radical, amazing, transformative love of God for them. I'm going to invite the band up, and as I do, I just want to close with this challenge I want us to think about what does it mean to be a Jesus church what means that we're on mission with Jesus and what does this mission look like it it's it's go and make disciples and one piece of that is is evangelism it's conversion right inviting people into relationship it's going after the one and then the second piece is what it's it's looking and saying okay how do we grow and how do we grow them so that they have the fuel to turn back towards mission and to reach others. Here's how I want to close. I want to pray for you that, that what God would do in our midst and our hearts is that he would pour sort of gasoline on the fuel of mission in our hearts. That God would awaken that in our hearts. But I also want to just say this, that there could be, you know, I'm talking about mission. I'm talking about coming into a relationship with Jesus, but I don't know everybody in this room. And it could be that you're sitting here and you don't have a relationship with him. I mean, it could be that you're a cultural Christian, right? Like, you're like, yeah, I mean, I'm kind of here because I think, you know, moralism seems good. Or, or it could be that, um, that you've become sort of this ritualistic thing. Can I just remind you of the gospel? Can I remind you that God created you and loves you? And he created you for a relationship with him. And the Bible says that even though that's the case, something has come between our relationship with God and it's this thing called sin. Sin's not something just you do. It's something I've done. All of us have. Not only does it separate us from a relationship with God, but it merits us punishment. And, and God, because he's a righteous judge, has to punish our sin. But here's the beautiful thing. Because he loves you, he made a way for you to have a relationship with him, even though you've sinned. And he made it through his son, Jesus. He sent Jesus to be your representative, to live the life you should have lived. And then on the cross, to die the death that you should have died in your place and in my place died he was buried and rose again here's the beautiful promise and many of you held on to this but maybe there's a few who haven't and I just want to invite you into it the promise is that right now today this Sunday March 21st that like no matter what you've done no matter how far you've gone no matter how far you've been if today you will call out to Jesus and say God forgive me I want to follow you like something supernatural takes place 
and you are forgiven of your sins and you're awakened to new life and you're adopted into the family of God forever. And so I want to close with just an invitation into that. If you're here this morning and you've never yet done that, can I just invite you to take a step of faith and trust in him? So can we just close our eyes? I'm going to pray in two directions. For that first group, if you're here and you've not yet trusted in Christ, just in your heart to him, say these words, something like, Father, forgive me. I want to follow you. I believe Jesus died for me. Make me new. Place your spirit in me. Change me, ask in Jesus' name. For those of you who are believers in Jesus, I just want to pray for you. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters in this room who are already disciples, that God, you would ignite into greater flame their love for you. I pray, Lord God, that there'd be some who maybe their love has kind of gotten a little cold with religious rituals and all that. But God, I pray that you'd awaken their heart and love for you again. That God, you would call them again to time with you. That you'd call them again to prayer. That you'd call them in beautiful ways. Their heart would be filled with love for you. And God, would you enable through that love Lord, so many in this room to live in radical self-giving love to their neighbor in such a way that it, it, it magnifies the beauty and the attractiveness of the message of Jesus so that this church and those who are in it, your church, Jesus' church, would be effective in the mission that you've called us to. We ask all of this in the beautiful name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.